following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So my name is Pastor Chris, for those of you guys who uh, don't know, um, and I am glad and privileged to be able to... um, once I get my mask off, to bring the Word of God here this morning and to be able to celebrate with, um, with our church and especially for our college freshmen that are heading off um, this week and in the coming weeks, hopefully, uh, maybe for a few of them in the coming months uh, because of all the things that this pandemic has brought. And so today, um, I will let you all know in advance that this Word was really, um, you know, I was thinking a lot about this freshman class and just what... Um, I believe that God wants to speak to them, but I, I also do believe that the message from Esther 4 today is relevant for our whole church, that it is for all of God's people. And so um, if you have your Bibles, we could turn to Esther chapter 4, and today's uh, message is titled Influencers. And uh, when we hear the word influencer today, I think a lot of times it reminds us of social media influencers, people who um, create and curate digital content that have uh, an ability to affect the purchasing choices of their followers, and their followers can number from anywhere from like a thousand people to into the millions. And traditionally, we've seen celebrities as the main spokespeople for these major companies and advertising for products, and sometimes those celebrities have little or nothing to do with the products that they're actually advertising for. So we might think of like somebody like Shaq, who's the Icy Hot guy. And that kind of makes sense. He's an athlete. You need to use Icy Hot to like take care of, of sore spots. But then we see like Chris Paul and Aaron Rodgers, who are spokespeople for, you know, uh, an insurance company for State Farm. Or Peyton Manning, who's the Papa John's guy. Or Taylor Swift, who does all the Diet Coke advertisements. And Jennifer Garner, who advertises for Capital One. And we might think to ourselves, well, why should I trust these people and their decisions about what kind of bank they're going to bank at or what kind of pizza is good and what kind of soft drink that I should drink? And it's strange, but because of um, their popularity, because of just the fact that people like who they are, that they do have a major effect on our purchasing decisions. And so that's why these companies are willing to pay millions of dollars to these people. Logically, it shouldn't matter, or I shouldn't care about what they believe is best about what I eat and drink and do about my bank, but I do. It does, it, it, it does matter. It does affect me. And likewise, social media influencers have gained the trust of their audience through the content that they create. It's a little different from these celebrities because most of the time they've, they've gained the trust of their audience because they have... Um, become sort of experts in their particular field. So you might watch people that, that do like makeup tutorials or, or see people who teach you how to play certain video games. And you start to respect them in their particular field and they've gained a, a following and they influence the population that uh, is watching. Well, the point today is not that we all ought to be influencers like they are or that we should aspire to have the, the reach that they have or to make the kind of money that they make. Although if you do end up making that kind of money, Caleb, make sure you remember your pastors. But the point is that all of us are already influencers. And I'm not saying this as like everyone gets a blue participation ribbon. So like, yes, everybody's like doing well now. But I really mean that 
um, even though we may not have that sort of scope in our influence, we may not have that large of an audience, that all of us do actually influence some group of people. We have an effect on their decisions about what they buy or do or like or think. And we may not ever reach that same kind of, um, same kind of audience, even as, as a social media nano-influencer, but, um, but we are influencers nonetheless. So one of the questions I want to pose to everyone today is to think about what are you doing with your influence? Today, as we look at the story of Esther, I hope that we can see that God places us in positions of influence, and the riskiest response is to do nothing. Here's some background on what's going on in the book of Esther uh, before we get to Esther 4, our passage for today. The Jews are in exile in Persia. King Xerxes is in control. Haman is one of Xerxes' trusted advisors, and he's just a bad, evil dude. And he hates the Jews. He's one of those guys that is just such a dirtbag, excuse my French, that you just want to, like, punch him in the face, right? Just because he just looks evil. Meanwhile, Esther is a uh, Jewish orphan girl who was raised by her cousin Mordecai, and he's this stand-up guy. He's the kind of guy that your mother would love to have you bring home for dinner, and I don't mean that only for the ladies. Ladies, maybe she's hoping that you would date him or that you're already dating him, but even for the guys, your, your mom, if you brought him home, would be like, wow, I'm, I'm so glad you have a friend that is such a good influence on you. And just one more thing, another little bit of background in this book is that in chapter 2 of this book, that little Jewish orphan girl, Esther, who was raised by her cousin Mordecai, became the queen. But not because uh, she was royalty or not because she had a lot of power and was a good politician and would have made a good queen, but because she won basically what amounts to a beauty pageant. King Xerxes uh, held a beauty pageant to uh, replace his old queen, and now Esther becomes the queen, and as she steps into her role as the queen, Mordecai tells her not to let anybody in the palace know that she's a Jew because the Jews were pretty low on the social, social ladder. So that brings us to where we are today. I'm going to begin kind of summarizing some of the stuff that happens in chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And Haman, that evil dude that you want to punch in the face, he begins his evil plot against the Jews. Esther 3, 8 to 10 tells us that Haman was saying to King uh, Xerxes, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in your provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. And so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And then, of course, this foolish king Xerxes, remember he had a beauty pageant to choose his queen, He's not that bright. Um, he agrees to this plan. In verses 13 to 14, it tells us that there's letters that were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. There were 127 of these provinces that he had control over. And there were letters sent to all the provinces with the instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Edar, and to plunder their goods. 
A copy of this document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. I told you that this guy Haman, no good, right? And Xerxes is obviously not that wise. And the Jews are in trouble, a lot of trouble. On the 13th day of that month of Adar, they have an appointment with complete annihilation. At the beginning of chapter 4, it tells us the response that Mordecai and the Jews have. Mordecai, when he learned about these letters that are being sent out and that the king had uh, agreed to pass this law, he went out in the midst of the city. He put on sackcloth and ashes, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. We see Mordecai's response of mourning and weeping. And then he goes up to the entrance of the king's gate because nobody was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, and he sits there. And the rest of the story in Esther 4 takes place with him sitting at the king's gate, having a conversation with Esther through messengers because he's not allowed to go in in his mourning clothes. And the Jews also, in verse 3, it tells us that in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning amongst the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them also lay in sackcloth and ashes. And now if there were a movie that were made of this story, this would be the point where the director would show like this cut of all this chaos going on in the city with the Jews learning about this order that was passed and tearing their robes and weeping and parents hugging their children and each other and just wondering like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And Mordecai is at the king's gate crying inconsolably. And then the director would cut immediately, be like one of those like, ah, screaming, tearing his robes, and then cut and go to the next scene where it's this peace and quiet in the palace with Queen Esther and her attendants sitting completely oblivious to all the things that are going on with the Jews that are in the city. She was completely oblivious. She had no idea what was going on and why there was all this weeping and lamenting because she was sitting in the palace and the rest of the Jews were outside of the king's gate. But her attendants come and tell her that Mordecai is mourning at the gate and that all the Jews are mourning. And so she sends clothes to Mordecai. Basically, her initial response is just, okay, Mordecai, like, feel better. I'm sorry that you're going through something hard, but feel better. Sends, her clo- sends him clothes and says, take off the sackcloth and the ashes and put this on instead. But he refuses. And so then Esther realized that something serious is going on. So she sends Hathak, one of her trusted advisors, one of the servants that was assigned to her by the king, to go and find out from Mordecai what's happening. And now I want to pause and and, and, uh, make our our first main point of the message today. It's that God had placed Esther in a strategic place of influence. Esther was a unique position of influence as a Jew with access to the king. The author, actually, of of this book, whether you want to consider it the divine author, but also the human author, took great pains to to emphasize the physical and the emotional distance between Esther and the rest of the Jews. They were all weeping and mourning, and she was sitting in her palace with no idea what was going on. And they, throughout this story, like I said, they keep on telling us that there's these lines throughout the narrative where they say, okay, and then Hathak went from Esther to Mordecai to deliver the message. And then went from Mordecai to Esther to deliver the message back. And so we have this picture of Mordecai sitting at the gate, all the Jews sitting outside of the city, in the city, and then Esther being isolated inside of the palace. And she was the only one 
that could have uh, accessed the king in any way. The reason why that movie director would have made that cut from all the weeping and mourning to the, the, the queen in the palace was to remind the viewer that, hey, there's this little glimmer of hope. Remember back in chapter 2 when that Jewish girl, that orphan, became the queen? That with this order that was passed for the Jews to be destroyed, that there is one Jewish woman sitting in the palace who might be able to save them from their sure destruction. And that's exactly what Mordecai was thinking as well. That's why he was at the gate, to get a hold of his adopted daughter. And when Hathak comes to find him to see what's going on, he tells him about the king's orders to kill the Jews. He tells him about Haman's plan. He tells him even about the amount of money that Haman was willing to pay and had told the king that he would pay into the treasury in exchange for their destruction. And he goes and tells Hathak, he says, Hathak, you need to go and command the queen to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. She was the only one who could do anything for them. And now Mordecai was calling on her to use that position of influence to save her people. But there's another problem that comes up. In verse 11, we see Esther's response to Mordecai, and she says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. This brings us to our second point, which is that using that influence that God gives to us, using that influence that God gave to Esther in that moment, it required great risk. Esther was afraid to use a position of influence for God's purposes because it would mean that she might perish. Nobody was allowed to approach the king unsummoned, and if you did, the only way that you could survive is if the king extended his golden scepter to you. And remember, this king is pretty unpredictable. He's not that smart or wise. And she tells us that she hadn't even been called into him at all, even as his wife, for the last 30 days. It was actually very likely that Xerxes wasn't a very good and faithful husband to his queen and that she had fallen out of favor with him. Now, Esther didn't become the queen with the goal of protecting or advocating for the Jewish people. She wasn't some politician who was, like, going undercover to, like, infiltrate the palace. She was just some Jewish orphan girl who won a beauty pageant. And remember, Mordecai even told her to keep her Jewishness hidden, so don't be fooled. It would have been a big ask for Mordecai to call on her in this moment to say, now you need to go to the king and plead to him on our behalf. But it was also no coincidence that this Jewish orphan girl had become the queen of Persia. Because it was for a moment like this, when her people would be in trouble, that she would, again, represent that little glimmer of hope. Esther was understandably scared and unsure because her influence would require great risk, but she was put in that position for a particular purpose, for this particular historical moment. That's exactly what Mordecai tells her. In verses 13 to 14, he says to her, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's household, they will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai basically tells Esther at that moment that the greatest risk to Esther was to do nothing. He warns her that doing nothing means that she and her father's household would perish. His argument wasn't, interestingly, his argument to Esther wasn't, look, Esther, look at all of these Jewish people that are going to die if you do nothing. Think about all the lives that could be lost. Think about how helpless all of them are. Rather, Mordecai had this rock-solid faith that God is a God who rescues. He even tells her himself and says, if you do nothing, then God's going to save his people through some other means. That's not what I'm primarily concerned about here in my conversation with you. But for you, Esther, if you choose to do nothing right now, then you and your father's house will perish. I think in Esther's case, Mordecai was actually not just referring to about um, referring to, to how she might actually die, physically die in that moment if she ever gets to find out that she's also a Jew. But I think the greater risk that he was referring to is that she was going to end up living a life that lacked purpose, that had no direction. Okay, you're sitting in the palace, but for what? What was God's purpose in putting you there. She had become the queen of Persia, but again, she was just one other woman in the king's king's harem. She hadn't even had contact with the king for 30 days. She was already on the verge of going into the annals of history as just another one of Xerxes' wives. Unremembered, forgotten, cast aside. And we look at Esther's life now, why is she remembered? How did she leave her mark? It was by stepping out in faith at this particular moment in history that God had prepared for her and that God had been preparing her for. To do nothing at that moment would have meant to ignore the purposes for which she had been put in the palace to begin with. So now she's in this predicament where if she chooses, where she needs to choose whether to risk death or to risk living a life that lacks purpose and probably would be filled with regret. So she makes her decision in verse 16. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. In order for her to be able to step out in faith and to grab a hold of her destiny, destiny, God gave Esther a community to stand before her, beside her, and behind her as she acted in faith. Mordecai represents this man who, he was this man who stood before her. Mordecai also was placed in a position of influence for a particular moment. Just as Esther had been in a, was in a unique position before the king, Mordecai was in a unique position before Esther. He was the one that had raised her. He had become her adopted father, essentially. And so he was the one amongst the Jews in the city that had a unique position to be able to make a case before her and to plead with her to plead for them before the king. Mordecai was also taking a risk. 
He was risking, maybe not his life, but he certainly was risking his relationship with, with Esther. It would have been easy for her to, to tell him that he's asking for too much and say, don't come visit me in this palace again. And he didn't mince words with her and didn't shy away from calling her out. He also believed that doing nothing would have been the greatest risk to himself and to Esther and to the rest of the Jews in Susa. So Mordecai stood before Esther by setting an example for her and also by speaking truth into her life. Esther's young woman stood beside her. She tells us in, that, in, in verse 16 that I and my young women will also fast as you do. She had a group of her peers that would fast right alongside of her and would support her as she goes before the king. And she was asking for the prayers and for the fasting of all the Jews, Jews in Susa, saying, go and gather all of them so that they might stand behind her and support her, even if from afar. So this entire group fasted together. She had a community that was surrounding her in the moment when she needed to act in faith. Esther was a woman who, even as the queen, didn't realize the sort of influence that she had and was afraid to take the risks that were necessary to influence, to use her influence to save her people. But if you read the rest of the story, we find that she does end up going before the king. And he does extend his golden scepter to her. And she does reveal her Jewish heritage and does reveal the evil plot that Haman was, was planning. And she saves her people from destruction. Their fasting in chapter 4 turns to feasting, and that feast is still remembered today by the Jewish people on the holiday Purim, which may be, according to many Jews, the most joyful celebration that they have all year. Maybe some of you have already started to put these pieces together, but I think that through this story of Esther, God is calling each of us also to step out in faith and to use the positions of influence that he has placed us in despite the risks involved. Just as he did with Esther, God teaches his people that he puts us in positions of influence and that the greatest risk is doing nothing. Just as God placed Esther in a position of influence, God places us in strategic places of influence. High school and college students, who are you more likely to listen to when it comes to your decisions about what to wear? or what to buy, or what to do on the weekend? Your parents or your friends? Going to venture a guess and say, most likely it's going to be your friends. <laughs> I hope that you all will respect your parents enough to listen to them when you need to, but it's no surprise to anyone that somewhere in your teenage years, your friends start to have a much louder voice in your life in certain areas than they used to. And that means that you also have a louder voice in your friends' lives that you also have a greater influence on your group of friends. You have a unique access to your campuses, to your friends, and to even our society. Because think of the way that young people can affect our society and inspire change in ways that even adults can't. And those positions of influence are God-given assets. You have a particular sphere of influence, and it is not an accident that you are there. And just as it did for Esther, using that influence requires risk. We may not be called to risk our lives to save thousands of, of Christians from massacre, 
But living for God's purposes requires us to trust him and to love him and to be willing to lose other things at times, not just to be willing, but to actually lose some of those comfortable things at times. It sometimes means being that responsible friend who advises all the others not to go to that party, even though that's not a popular thing to say or to bring up. And other times it could mean going to that party with your friends who aren't going to listen to your advice just so that you can be there with them when they need you. And it might mean that you're risking getting in trouble with the rest of them if they get caught for underage drinking. It might mean that you get judged by your peers in the church for being at a party to begin with. But God has a purpose for which he has created each of us. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God knows where he's calling us to, where he's leading us to, what he wants to use us for. But we need to be willing to step out and take those risks. God is preparing us for particular situations and preparing those situations for us. And again, just like Just as was the case for Esther, the greatest risk with our positions of influence is doing nothing. In the introduction to his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper tells the story of a man who comes to know Christ in his old age, and he's sitting in the pews listening to a message, and he becomes overwhelmed with the conviction of his sin, and he's weeping, and he's shouting there, I've wasted it, I've wasted it. There ought to be nothing that scares us more or disturbs us more than a wasted and purposeless life. A life defined by mediocrity and settled into the comfort that we've become so used to, with no sense of vocation and bent in on itself rather than being turned outward, poured out into this world. Sometimes we can be tempted to just protect ourselves from every danger, to build this cocoon of safety rather than being willing to step out and take risks to use our influence for others. And lastly, just as he did with Esther, God gives us a community to stand before us and with us and behind us. Your community matters. We as a church today, we are kind of having this COVID season send-off service for our college freshmen And we as a church want to send you out into the next chapter of your lives. And we are standing behind you, praying for you, even if from a distance, waiting with hope to see what God will do in and through you. And you also need to surround yourselves with friends who will stand beside you in your moments of need, who will be the strength that you need to be able to face the challenge that that require you to step out in faith. They'll be there in the struggles, in those darker times when you feel like you're alone. I want to ask you also to be willing to listen to the wise counsel of parents and mentors and professors and pastors who go before you, who know you and love you and want to see you thrive and experience all that God has in store for you. I just want to specifically kind of address our freshman class for a moment and just say that this freshman year, 
the class this year has, has not um, looked anything close to normal. You may look at yourself and feel like, man, we're just the unluckiest group of, of any group in recent memory. This transition from high school to college is a big one and almost the closest thing that we have as a society to a rite of passage from adolescence to adulthood. And I think we could argue that it's bigger even than transitioning from college to the working world because for most of us, that's the moment when we first are living away from our parents and it's the first time that you actually take on a huge amount of debt for yourself uh, to pursue your dreams. And it's the first time you actually have full control over your schedule, ha- having to decide when your classes are going to be, when you're going to study, when you're going to go to the gym, when you're going to eat, what you're going to eat. And your graduation last spring was not at all like what we'd hoped that it would be. Most of you probably didn't even get to stand alongside of your peers, celebrating together sitting on a stage and, and then walking across that stage with friends and family to cheer you on and celebrate with you. We're not even sure what this fall semester in college is going to look like because for a lot of you guys, you may not even be on campus. You might end up starting the school year at home behind a Zoom screen. And even if you start on campus, the whole situation is so precarious that there's no guarantee that you'll remain on campus through the rest of the semester, much less the year. So a lot of you guys might be thinking, why this? Why now? Why me? Why us? And I'd say that's exactly the question, the kind of question that you ought to be asking yourself. In this particular historical moment, at your particular school, in your particular freshman class, in your particular group of friends, in your particular classes, what in the world is God doing? Why has he put me here? Where and in what ways is he inviting me to step out in faith, even at great risk to myself, to my social life, to my financial security, to my academic pursuits, to all of those things that I had hoped that this year would look like, that my college experience and my college career would look like? In what ways is he inviting me to put those things at risk so that I can use my influence that I have to live into the purpose, purposes that he has for me? Caleb and Bethany and Ethan, my prayer for the three of you guys is that in the next stage of life, that God would start to make those purposes clearer for you. That he'll give you the courage to become those kinds of influencers for his kingdom. At this time, I do want to invite um, Beth and, and Ethan weren't able to join us in person for our service today, but I'm going to invite Caleb. You're going to be kind of our representative for your class today. Um, I want to invite our church to just pray over this class. You don't have to come all the way up here. It's okay. You, you come right here. I know, I know. You don't want to get too close. I'm a dangerous man. So, yeah. Um, so, church, I want to invite you all uh, at your seats to, if you want to, to even just reach out a hand to Caleb, and he'll be our, uh, our proxy for your whole class. <laughs> and um, just to invite you all to pray for them. Let's bow our heads and pray for this class.
Father, we thank you for the ways that you've guided Caleb and Beth and Ethan um, through their childhood, uh, their junior high years, and through their high school years, and now that you are leading them into their freshman year of college, and it looks nothing like what we had expected. God, we pray for, um, even as they start the school year, for safety at their schools. We pray, even as we are looking at other states that have already opened up and seeing those COVID cases rising with students meeting in person, um, there is a huge concern for their health and for their safety. So, Father, we pray a prayer of protection over them. God, we pray for the, for the staffs at their school. We pray for the students. God, we also pray for each of them that you would surround them with a solid community to be able to journey with them. I know that especially with, uh, you know, at least a couple of them starting their school year online, that it's going to be particularly difficult to be able to make friends and to be able to meet new people and to really connect with other people because they're not going to be physically in the dorms together. They won't have um, face-to-face meetings. They won't even be able to share, share meals together and other things like that. But Father, in, in whatever ways that you can in your providence, we ask that you would surround them with, um, with friends, uh, eventually at some point with roommates, with a church, um, to be that community for them that would stand uh, behind, beside, and, and before them. 